Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I am Oren McIntyre. So I have been working on a long-running series looking at the works of the philosopher Nick Land. Land is one of the critical figures when it comes to neo-reactionary thought. He is somebody who was a formerly a Marxist, or still I guess in many ways, uh, thinks along those lines, but however kind of moved to the right and in that transition brought a very interesting uh, set of skills when it came to analyzing our political situation. I've been looking at a number of different essays by him, and today we're looking at something from his Xenosystems blog. It's something you can't find online easily anymore. However, there is a PDF collection of them. Uh, there's a rumor that there will eventually be a printed version, uh, but we will have to see if that comes to fruition. Today, we're looking at the, the topic of capital and whether or not it is bound to escape any political liability. Now, again, that's a topic that is something that the right usually does not look at, but it's critical if we want to understand the politics of what is happening around us and whether or not mechanically we can actually constrain different as aspects of globalism. So we're going to read through this essay, look at some of the critical things that we need to understand about capital and its tendency to move outside of the political organizations that bind it. But before we do, guys, let's go ahead and hear about The Blind. For years, Hollywood's been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended towards the anti-hero, a flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, The True Story of the Robertson Family is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. And you'll see there's always hope. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, triumphs, and values that shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to stream it here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here rather than Apple or Amazon, we wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to do that. Make sure to act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robinson story on Blaze TV. You can buy it today at blazetv.com, The Blind, for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash The Blind. All right, guys. So let's go ahead and dive into the essay here. I'll read pieces of it, and then we'll stop and discuss as we get to the critical parts. So again, the title of this short essay is Capital Escapes. Lance says, this is not an easy subject for people to scan with calm, analytical detachment, but it's critical, a critically important one. It's among the rare topics where the left is more likely to realistically evaluate than the right. Much follows from the conclusions reached. So he's going to talk about the fact that the right has a hard time when it looks at capital because capitalism and the battle between capitalism and socialism or other economic forces has become a big part of the identity of the different political sides. Many people only see the different sides of the political spectrum as a battle between economic ideologies. I think that's a big mistake. I think that's a real problem. But it's true that in many cases, a lot of people on the right see themselves as capitalists or defending capitalism and capitalism is its its own good or its primary goal, those kind of things. And so they wrap themselves around this as their identity. Now, to be clear, economic systems should at least, and we'll, we'll talk about, this is going to be a big part of this essay, whether or not this can be true. But but in, in the past, uh, economic systems should be bound to the people they serve. They should uh, be for the good of the people they serve. And in many cases, the thing that we call capitalism has been the best, best form of economic system, and therefore it is the one that is best for the people uh, at that time. However, it's not, it's not a suicide pact, uh, capitalism, socialism, whatever you want to call the, the current uh, system you're, you're following, that, that shouldn't, you should not be bound to that system. You should be worrying about the good of a people. Now, that does, of course, mean taking in a lot of things into account. Maybe something looks like it's good for people in the short term, but in the long term, it's very harmful. So I'm not saying that you should, uh, you know, you shouldn't look at the long term effects of economic systems. 
But the point is that if you are caring only about the economic system itself, the ca- the economic system becomes the religion. If the ep- economic system becomes the thing you are serving and not, hey, this is a tool. And if it's good for the people I care about and I, I rule over or I'm a part of or, you know, I serve. Well, then, you know, the, then it's it's good for them. Then that's good. And if it's not, then it's not. And th- that's the primary goal is the is the good of the people and not the long-term viability of my personal economic preferences or ideology. But the thing Land is going to invite us to do here is discard our own attachments to to any of this stuff and instead look at this kind of analytically. He's saying that the left is better able to do this in this particular case, and he'll explain why. I I won't dive too deep into that because he'll reveal a little more here in a second. It can be fixed provisionally by a hypothesis that requires uh, understanding if not consent. Capital is highly incentivized to detach itself from the political eventualities of any specific ethnographic locality, ethno, ethnogeographical locality, and by its very nature, it, it increasingly commands impressive resources with which to liberate itself or deterritorialize. All right, so there's a lot in those two sentences. Let's break that down. First, he says, look, we need we need to look at this kind of in a detached way. We need to understand this. It's not about giving it uh, our, our moral consent, right? It's, it, we're, we're, he's, he's making an appeal to a Machiavellian form of analysis here. We need to look at what works and what is true and not so much what we prefer or like to be true. And this is going to be difficult because in some ways I disagree with Land here. However, I think his call to think about this uh, in this way is important because if we attach our own personal preferences to what's going to be true here, then we're going to have a hard time seeing you know the forest for the trees. And, and that's what he's encouraging. So the second line here, capital is highly incentivized to detach itself from the political eventualities of any specific ethnogeographic locality. All right, what does that mean? It means that capital does not want to be bound. Uh, we want to control the economic impacts, the 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 movement of information and 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 uh, you know uh, production, uh, development, technology, uh, and, and of course money. We want we want to control all of those things, and, and we want to bind them for the good of the people, right? The, we want to bind them to the specific ethnogeographic locality, right? So we want things that are operating in America's interest because we're Americans. And then the Chinese want things that are operating in their interest because they're Chinese. And and people who live in Western Europe would, would prefer that those things be bound to them. But what he's saying is that, that capital is incentivized to detach itself. So globalization, the process that we're, un- we're undergoing, that we're watching, where capital stops serving the good of the nation and instead detaches itself and wants to escape the political concerns of a specific region, he's saying that that is, that is incentivized by capital. That's what capital wants to do. And of course, that makes sense if we think about it really quickly, right? So for instance, uh, capital says, I, you know, we want to offshore the manufacturing of something because it, it's cheaper, it's more efficient economically, something like that. Now, the specific political ethnogeographic concerns might say, well, actually, we want that manufactured in America because, let's say, uh, all our antibiotics have been offshore to China, which they have, right? All of our antibiotics get, get manufactured outside of the United States. And we say, well, it would be better if we manufactured them here, even if it's more expensive or time-consuming or less efficient overall, because uh, if if there's something, say, I don't know, a global pandemic or something, that, that and, and we have a hostile power that produces all of, say, of our antibiotics, we would not have access to them, and that could be a really big problem. And so even though economically, like the needs of capital might say it's better to offshore this creation of antibiotics are the political motiv- our political uh motivations of our in our ethnogeographical concerns might say actually we'd like to we'd like to pay the higher cost of keeping it short here that that is to to serve our interests 
going back to Land's uh, quote here, and by its very nature, it increasingly commands impressive resources with which to liberate itself or deterritorialize. All right, so what is deterritorialization? That's a really critical concept to grasp here. So Land talks a lot about deterritorialization and reterritorialization, and I think it's a really important thing for us to get from him. He takes that verbiage. Uh, from Deleuze and Guattara, uh, these were actually two Marxists uh, who who wrote a book called Anti Oedipus and, and another one called A Thousand Plateaus. Um, we could, there's a lot behind that. The point of deterritorialization and reterritorialization is that capital is originally territorialized, meaning that it serves the interests of a particular group. We create a business or we create a you know uh, some some kind of organization. And it serves the function of, I don't know, transporting people across America or making pharmaceuticals or, you know, whatever widget it does. And it does that in the service of people who are mostly bound to this area, right, but to, to, to this region. However, as it grows and it globalizes, it seeks to deterritorialize. The company is no longer interested in serving a particular group of people. It doesn't want to just serve Americans. It wants to expand its reach, expand its capacity, and capital seeks to deterritorialize um, different aspects of the uh, of of the business and move them into a more global marketplace. This also happen, happens with different things inside our society. So, for instance, uh, at one time, uh, finding a romantic partner was territorialized geographically right you had to be in a specific uh region you, you know you could only travel so far usually to find a romantic partner and it was also usually territorialized in the context of let's say uh the family or the church right you you would find a romantic partner because your parents arranged a marriage or because uh you you met somebody at your church or your church had a group where you, know, you got people together those kind of things that that was where the primary primary business of finding a romantic partner was done, but it got moved out of deterritorialized from the geographic region and the church and the family, and it's now been reterritorialized into the marketplace, and not just the marketplace, but a more global marketplace. Right now, people date online; they pay a fee to 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 go on websites to date online or to use apps or those kind of things. And they often uh, interact with people well outside of their region, and they do so in ways that they never would have done inside the context of a church or family. So that process has been deterritorialized from something that was sacred or familial and regional and has been re-territorialized into the market and in a global way. And so he's saying that uh, increasingly, Capital is able to deterritorialize itself, remove it from that ethnogeographic context, remove it from that political context, and and then re relocate itself, reterritorialize itself into kind of the more that global market. Now, uh, we're we're going to dive deeper here into what that means. We just re, uh, just broke that sentence, those two sentences down because we need to understand concepts in there. So let's jump back into actually making progress in the essay. It is certainly not, at least initially, a matter of approving such a tendency, even if moralistic inclinations of gregarious apes would prefer the question to be imminently transformed in this direction. So I obviously uh, you know, uh, disagree with the characterization of uh, gregarious apes. However, um, he is right that we have to look at this question with some degree of, of detachment. If we, if we come at it directly from well, should this happen, then we may not be able to understand whether it can happen or not. And that's always a dangerous place to be. I encourage people not to do that when they're doing their, their political calculus, right? So people will look at what's happening in our society, they say, and they say, well, today, and they'll say, well, look, uh, the Constitution says it shouldn't happen. So it can't happen. But that's not how that works. If it if the Constitution says it shouldn't happen and it's still happening and nothing about the political system is stopping it from happening nothing about the legal system is stopping it from happening if there's no action from the people to keep it from happening then saying it shouldn't happen 
doesn't actually change anything. And we need to reevaluate the way we look at it politically so we can better understand what's happening. The same argument is being made by Land here. He's saying, look, when, we, when we're looking at the question of whether capital escapes, we must actually understand the truth of it. We don't want to approach it from, well, should it be able to escape? Or, or should we be able to control it? We're not trying to draw those moralistic lines. We're trying to better understand the truth of the situation. <coughs> All right, so back into Land's essay here. Uh, integral leftist uh, animosity to capital is actually valuable in this respect, since it makes some room for comprehensive apprehension of globalization as a strategy oriented to the flight of alienating productive ca capability from political answerability. The left sees capital elude its clutches and it sees something very real when it does uh, does so. By the most significant agent of, uh, 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 by far the most significant agent of exit is capital itself, a, a fact which once again practically uh, uh, explicable, a <coughs> excitable, sorry, apes find hard to see straight. So what's he, what is he saying there? He's saying, well, in some ways, the left understand this issue better because they actually have this animus towards capital. Uh, now, here he's talking about really the, the Marxist left. Uh, obviously, uh, in many ways, the neoliberal left are not, they don't have hostility to this at all. This is their goal. If you're looking at the World Economic Forum, if you're looking at uh, you know George Soros or a lot of these people, they want the global governance. They want the globalization. They want... Uh, the global marketplace of both humans and uh, and things. And so they, they don't have a lot of problems here. He's talking about kind of that old Marxist animosity towards uh, capital. He says, well, uh, he says, while they might be wrong a lot of about a lot of things, their hostility to, towards capital at least helps them to see the eventuality of this truth that capital does want to escape that it does want to avoid political answerability because that's kind of the the socialist idea right is that we will make political we will make capital politically answerable we will control its flow we will make sure that it cannot escape uh the consequences that it visits upon our our uh, ethnogeographical locality right it, we want to control it we want to uh penalize it in certain ways we want to punish it. We want to keep it under wraps. We do not want it to just be able to escape and do whatever it does. However, he's and he's saying that the left's animosity towards this lets you know that, that you know gives it some some truth. It, it allows them to see something that many people on the right maybe don't want to see. Um, he's he's saying that really uh, the most significant agent of exit is capital. The most uh, significant agent of getting people out of political accountability is capital. And well, that, that's hard to argue in some ways, right? We look at uh, whether it's people fleeing uh, kind of more controlled governments originally uh, for the new world, uh, what allowed them to do that? Well, capital, the fact that there was investment and there were all these uh, ways that you could, you, you know, you could uh, split a, a, a finance a voyage and you could, secure uh new products and send them back you know they're also the fact that today you know how do you escape political accountability well you, you rich being rich is a great way to do that uh and so there there's most certainly some truth to that back to his essay here it's escaping let's punish it uh he says uh yes yes that's there's always plenty of time for that but shelving such idi idiocies for just a few moments uh is a, a cognitive prerequisite Primary question is is a much colder one. Is this actually happening? So he says, yeah, I get it. You want to go ahead and punish this. I get it that you want to go ahead and tell capital what it wants to do. We can figure that out in a second. The more important thing to figure out is, is this actually happening? Is escape actually a primary function of this? And can we control it? The implications are enormous. If capital cannot escape, it is a, it's apparent migration into global circuits beyond national government control for non-exhaustive uh, uh, for non-exhaustive example is mere illusion then the sphere of political possibility is vastly expanded Pol uh, policies that hurt limit shrink or destroy capital 
can be pursued with great latitude. They only be constrained by political factors, making the political fight the only one that matters. All right, so he's saying here, if we can actually control this, if capital can't escape and it's constant shift, what looks like it's constant desire to shift into uh, the, you know, kind of, kind of the global market escape the boundaries of the nations that would try to control it. If that's not true, if that's merely an illusion, well, then we have all these political options. We have all these political tools. You can put regulations on it. You can shift the incentives. You can work to slow it down. You can put barriers between capital and its acceleration. You can do all of these different things if capital isn't inevitably destined to escape. However, if it is, then that really matters. The question is really, what is the realm of political or what is the realm of political? Uh, how can it uh, work in, in concert with economics? Is there a limit to the realm of the political when it comes to economics? Will capital eventually escape or can economics uh, control capital can economic policy uh, ultimately put restraints on capital? Back to his essay here. If capital cannot in reality flee, then progress and regress are simply alternatives. Na uh, either nations advance as wholes in a way that uh, compromises on an uh, awkward diagonal between the very diff different optimisms of Whigs and socialists, or they regress as wholes, destroying techno-economic capability on the down downslope of social degeneration. All right, so if capital can't flee, if, 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 if it can't actually uh, get away from all political control, all political uh, uh, forces, then either you're going to regress or you're going to, uh, or, or you're going to progress, uh, and it's going to kind of happen uh, simultaneously, right? Nations are going to work towards a thing uh, uh, in a way that, like he says here, in a way that compromises uh, between very different optimisms of Whigs and socialists. So whether these people are right and you have some level of control and you're going to progress because you you exercise that control in a positive way that that grows your society, or you kind of have this doomer mentality where like, uh, the social the social economic ability decreases because uh, you you when you try to control it it just kind of starts falling apart and then you have social degeneration. So if it can't escape, then it's going to be one of those two things. Either you have this optimistic view that we can control it in a positive way because that that's one assumption that a lot of people make, right? If we control capital, if we find a way to control capital's escape and localize it and hold it accountable for a particular uh, effects that it has, then it will always be positive, right? That's kind of the socialist hope or uh, the Whig hope he's 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 uh, highlighting here that there will be a positive future if we manage capital correctly and we can control it correctly. But he's saying that's not necessarily the case, right? There there is this thing where humans will ultimately try to control capital and they could and they could succeed in controlling capital. We could succeed in controlling economics. However, that will lead us to doom. Right. And that that's a very real possibility. A lot of people make that case. Any attempt to control capital, uh, if it is controllable at all, could lead to a downward economic spiral. A lot of free trade people, a lot of laissez faire economic people will say this. Right. You'll hear a lot of neoconservative uh, economics guys say this. We, ha we have to we have to have all these open borders. We have to have uh, open markets all the time. We have to have free trade all the time. Any attempts to put any kind of economic policy or restriction in place is socialism. And if we do that, then everything falls apart. And, he, and he's saying that has to be a real possibility you consider, right? Maybe there will be positive effects of controlled capital. Maybe you will have this, this uh, you know, pro, uh, positive uh, progress of controlling capital if it's possible. But also you could control capital and then you just have a giant failing. And a lot of people will point to you know, uh, state attempts throughout history to control economic progress, uh, economic liberalization, and kind of their downfalls. And you will have a track record of that. That that won't be something that's entirely wrong. And the question is, can is there a good balance that could be struck? Right? If ta if capital 
escape is not inevitable. If capital can be controlled, if it can be limited, if it can be put in uh, in kind of the box and, and forced to serve particular peoples, then uh, the, then the two eventualities are progress or degeneration because there's consequences. We want there to be the sweet spot. We want there to be this perfect balance where we control capital sufficiently to where it continues to serve the needs of humans and specifically the human group that created it, you know, as, as people who would prefer that capital serve our own nations, our own peoples, uh, then we're people who want to be able to control it and bind it to uh, our ethnogeographical location, locality, right? And that's what we talked about earlier. Uh, we, but we want that to happen without significant consequence. We don't want there to be just like this general social degeneration because we attempted to limit uh, you know, the ability of capital to escape. Uh, but again, that's all predicated on the idea that we can limit the ability of capital to escape. Uh, is there is there that sweet spot? Uh, even if we could control it, is an, is a separate question. But the bigger question for land here is the first one: Can we even control it in the first place? Can we actually bind it to specific people, specific areas? Can we limit its its constant desire to uh, uh, to uh, deterritorialize? Right, because I think that's a lot of what. When especially conservatives look at what's happening, a lot of people on the right, they look at what's happening in society. They What they see is a lot of deterritorialization. They see a lot of economic deterritorialization. And that's what they're worried about. They think they're worried about social degeneration. And they're right, right, that 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 uh, we see a lot of degeneracy that has uh, that has come, uh, you know, morally. But a lot of that stuff follows from the economic consequences of deterritorialization. When we remove the ability of one uh, one uh, man to provide for a whole family, we're going to change the family structure, right? When we open up uh, markets to to women and children, you're going to see uh, the the structure of the the social structure of the family change. We're going to see critical parts of our social structures and our traditions change when we deterritorialize things. And so a lot of the things that the right observes that they don't like are actually the consequences of capital escape. And so the right, in many ways, is looking at ways that it can bind capital to serve those family units or those traditional uh, kind of bonds that we have as humans, rather than letting everything escape and kind of turning everything into this globalized, homogenized market. All right, back to our essay here. Only if capital escapes or practically decouples does it make sense to entertain extreme pessimism about social political trends alongside a robust confidence in the momentum of techno-economic innovation. The escape of capital is thus an intrinsic component of split political forecasts. The escape of capital, is, or uh, sorry, I just said that, in which squalid ruin and technological intelli intelligence Runaway, uh, runaway, accelerate in. Sorry, I messed that up real bad. Let me reread that sentence. The escape of capital is thus an intrinsic component of split future forecasts, in which squalid ruin and techno intelligenic uh, runaway, uh, uh, runaway accelerate in inverse uh, chant. Man, uh, in inversely tangled uh, tandem. Cyberpunk and Elysium. Sorry, I, I messed that reading up real bad. Here's what it, here's what he's trying to say here. He's saying if capital is escape is inevitable, right? If this is going to happen this way, then we end up in a situation where we get these split forecasts, right? Where capital is no longer serving a particular group well, but it's still accelerating in its design, and we can see this in a lot of dystopian. Uh, science fiction. He he kind of gives us cyberpunk or Elysium. If you've never read uh, uh, any of the uh, uh, of the neuromancer novels, the cyberpunk uh, you know type uh, fiction. Basically, this is a world where technology becomes very advanced, but the average person lives in squalor. So people who are extremely rich or people who are at the the end of this, people who are able to escape through capital from kind of the social consequences of this deterritorialization, they live very well, right? They they have they live in kind of that Elysium future 
where everything is is very nice and they can uh, avoid many of the consequences of what has happened. But the average person has to live with the consequences of the fact that escape capital exit has deterritorialized so many things that society, normal social bonds and functions have broken down. And that's when you look at a lot of that that science fiction uh, of that style, that's what they're talking about is that these different things have kind of, uh, sep- these two futures have separated the people who could escape uh, you know, with the capital are doing quite well. They're living amazing lives. Uh, that that rift grows uh, quite uh, quite quickly because that capital has jettisoned its need to basically uh, take care of the average person. Now, for land, that's a good thing. Uh, he thinks that capital escaping its need to kind of care for the larger group means that the small group of people, or really even just intelligence, whatever, you, however you want to define that, that can escape the need to sustain the masses, well, those that's going to grow and that's going to accelerate and that's going to become hyper advanced. And that's that's this amazing, you know, kind of sci-fi future for those that group. However, it's terrible for everybody that's left behind, obviously. But this is a really difficult question because as technology technology advances, we can kind of feel this, right? For a while, it felt like we were in this golden age where the the rising tide would lift all the boats, right? The the technological innovation would come around and everyone would have longer lifespans and you know they would they would be able to uh look up, you know, any information at all time. You'd have the library of Alexandria at your fingertips, blah blah blah. But then we look at the actual consequences of that technology and what's really happening is families are breaking down uh, the average, per, you know, the, the ability of people to sustain like a middle class existence falls apart. And we start having this extreme separation where, yeah, you know, the lives of the very rich or the people who can stay uh, ahead of the consequences of capital escape. They live amazing lives, but you end up with a bunch of squalor everywhere else. Again, you, you can look at basically any place the left rule uh, where, you know, the, yes, you can you can live this amazing nightlife in, in Manhattan or somewhere. And, and you can have uh, the best uh, uh, the best of everything. You can have the best restaurants. You can have the best museums. You can have the best clubs. You can you can go to the finest schools. But you know, increasingly, there's this larger, larger homeless population. The streets get more dangerous. Again, that's that very cyberpunk uh, reality where where this bifurcation of society uh, gets more extreme. And he says that, you know, this is this is kind of the nature of if capital is going to escape, then that then that's kind of what that means is that we're going to see as capital separates itself from the need to sustain the larger society. It can become more and more advanced. It can make more and more progress. It can accelerate faster and faster because it's decoupled itself from the specific needs of a people group. But the people group it left behind is going to face really serious consequences. Uh, back to his essay here. Uh, try not uh, try not to ask, if only for a moment, whether you like it. Ask first, first whether in, uh, intellectual integrity can... Uh, with, with, sorry. Ask first, with whatever inte- intellectual integrity you can summon, what is the real process? Okay. And this is the very difficult question, right? He's not asking us to say, is capital separating itself from the people it serves good? Is capital exit good? The answer, as someone for me who cares about the people it's separating from, is no. It causes serious problems. It destroys families. It destroys communities. It destroys traditional structures that sustain humanity and the white and the wider good of the people it's supposed to serve. But he's saying, that's not the question I'm asking you guys. I'm not asking you, is this a good thing? I'm asking you, is this the process that's actually happening? And the difficult thing is the answer to that seems to be. Yes, right. It's hard to look at the situation we have and say that this is not happening. Now, you could say, well, there's not a sufficient effort uh, made to keep things territorialized, right? Keep things locked in kind of that that box of the ethnogeographical concern. There's not enough effort expended in limiting capital escape. There's been all of these free market policies there's been this desire of you know the ruling class to separate themselves and become uber rich and and make this incredible existence and so really uh it's it's not that capital restriction isn't possible it's that it simply has not been tried sufficiently i'd remind you as much as i'd like that to be true that you know 
all the political ideologies of the 20th century that were not liberalism were founded basically in response to liberalism in an attempt to stop this process. This is what Alexander Dugan talks about in the fourth political theory when he talks about the fact that you know both, uh, both communism and fascism were basically founded as reactions to economic liberalism in, in the interest of binding the capital escape, binding the process, stopping the very process that Land is asking about now. And as we can see, both of those ideologies sit in tatters. They they failed to do what they wanted to do. You know, my, now you might say, well, there's there's some combination. That's that's kind of what uh, Dugan says in some ways. We can take the bad elements of those ideologies and we can recombine the good elements. We just drop the bad elements, recombine the good elements, and that can stop this process. Um, maybe uh, though though I think even Dugan is is uh, sketchy on whether or not that actually works. And I think for him, it's really that after this process. There's a there's a post liberal order. There's a post uh, liberal state that uh, that can learn from kind of the mistakes that were made and carry into the future uh, controls on capital exit that might uh, rebind us to the spiritual, rebind us to the traditional, rebind us to our prior loyalties of places and peoples and groups and nations, and not. Uh, not just drop us into kind of this global homogenized marketplace. But again, Land's question is, is this for the process that's happening? And I think if we're honest, the answer is, uh, unfortunately, yes. It is the contention, back to his uh, essay here, it is the contention of this blog. Remember, all of these essays are written on, on, a, on a blog you used to have. Contention of this blog that without a conception of economic automization, uh, which means escape, modernity makes no sense. All right, so what does that mean? says basically our, our our modern uh if we look at the world around us modernity really is the story of economic uh automization it's doing this on its own right we're we, we are increasingly removing the interests of the state of the people of the human of the individual from the economic process and again if you look at some of the things that go on it's it's hard to say that's not the case now most people will say, well, no, those are individual decisions being made, right? The CEO of the corporation is deciding not to serve the nation and instead serve the interests of the global marketplace or, you know, the, the politician, the, the, the think tank guy, the academic, they're all, they're all making active choices to, to serve the interests of a, a global order or, you know, uh, the, you know, deterritorialize these things and not serve the interests of the uh, people that they're supposed to. And yes, they are making individual choices. That's true. However, remember, those are based on incentive structures. And those incentive structures seem to be accelerating towards this uh, more egregious capital escape. That's kind of his point is that, you know, and, and he'll say this elsewhere, I'll, I'll get more into this probably in a later episode, but the decisions start to make themselves. Yes, individuals are making choices, but those choices are lined up with the incentives created by capital. And so in this way, he's saying capital liberates itself because uh, we, you know, we, we have this incentive structure that is aligning with the need of capital to escape. And so even though individual actors are making the decisions, they are constantly incentivized to dismiss the needs of the people, the nation, the group, and instead pursue uh, that which is uh, advantageous to capital escape. Back to our reading here. The basic vector of capital cannot be drawn in any other way. Furthermore, the distribution of ideological positions uh, through their relation to this vector as resistance to or promotions of the escape of capital constructs the most historically meaningful version of the left-right political spectrum since it confirms the social conflict of greatest real consequences. So uh, he's basically saying that the best way to understand the left-right divide in politics is actually instead of you know taking the hodgepodge of different uh, uh, policy issues and things that you know we we all have probably noticed that left and right don't mean very much right now uh, for a lot of people, and so he's saying the best way to construct this is actually along this idea of capital escape, whether it supports capital escape or it doesn't. If it doesn't, it's left. If it does, it's right. Again, for land, this is a good thing. He wants capital to 
escape the political because for Lamb, the political is inherently leftist. Uh, he says the political is inherently leftist. It's always a, uh, a collection of decision-making bodies looking to drag things down. And so leftism is the attempt to kind of drag things down through the political process for him. And rightism is basically the embrace of escape, uh, and in this case, capital escape. Maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't, but that, that's his construction here. If capital is escaping, the emergence of the blockchain is an inevitable escalation of modernity with consequences too profound to easily summarize. If it isn't, the macroeconomics might work. All right, so what he's saying there is, you know, traditionally we have macroeconomics, uh, you know, or at least uh, we, we, we have a monetary policy. We have uh, different regulations on banking and these kind of things. There's a central, uh, there's a centralized uh, institution or a distributed web of institutions which authorize interactions and uh, you know they limit uh, these things. And that that's kind of what macroeconomics is. It's an attempt to put it like a, a governor on a limiter on the uh, the constant feedback, the constant constant positive feedback of economic interactions. And he's saying the blockchain, because blockchain technology basically allows you to decentralize economic interactions. You don't have to run things through this network of banks that can be controlled through states. The blockchain allows you to uh, create uh, the, the system that is entirely disconnected uh, from state-controlled con entities. That allows you to have uh, an incredible escalation of modernity. You can have an incredible escalation of this capital flight because then countries really have no way to control things. And there's this battle back and forth. You know, a lot of blockchain people, a lot, a lot of uh, Bitcoin people, a lot of cryptocurrency people like, uh, like the idea because specifically it allows for their transactions to no longer be governed by the state. The state can't inflate money or, or you know, slap controls from banks onto things to limit what you're doing. There's no longer that accountability to a single political entity. And that's really advantageous if you're like, if you think that political entities are poisonous to you. And a lot of people do right now, right? That that makes perfect sense. I, I personally think that the US government is more dangerous than pretty much any other uh, external enemy to the well-being of the people of the United States. And so in some ways you might say, well, well, blockchain and, 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 and Bitcoin, those things uh, solve that problem because it removes... Uh, the the United States government's ability to manipulate uh, monetary policy and therefore prop up the regime with these infinite uh, fake dollars. And that's all true, right? And that, that seems good in theory, right? That, that the regime would, would uh, no longer be able to manufacture this kind of fake control over the economic system and uh, kind of everything uh, through its macroeconomic policy. However, there is a consequence to this, right? If you completely free capital from states and the control of states, uh, that, that seems good because the state is against you, uh, sure. However, then you free uh, pretty much its ability to be controlled in the interest of any, pol any political entity at all, which means you have lose the ability to contain, to say, the United States ever for any reason, even if the United States is something you are looking to preserve or people in the United States are something you're looking to preserve. And so there's this, you know, there's certainly uh, you could say a dual edged sword, but I would say, uh, you know, almost uh, almost legion edge sword of of what capital escape can do. Sure, it can topple uh, bad regimes, but it could also topple any regime, uh, good, good or bad, which is kind of its point is to to reduce the ability of uh, of, uh, of politics to have any bearing on capital because capital can escape its consequences entirely so this is a very difficult question one that i i'm still grappling with because it's hard to argue i think with the inevitability of some of the process that land is talking about at the same time uh it seems very difficult for humans to i don't know exist in any you know good way any meaningfully good way with each other uh if that if this becomes a reality now, for many people, you know, this is this is certainly a mindset on certain parts of the right saying, well, that doesn't matter because only the strongest and the fittest uh, would survive. Only only kind of the cream of the crop would escape um, with the capital. 
and that's going to be for the best. And perhaps that's true. Maybe that maybe that is ultimately the good. However, that's going to leave a lot of very good people uh, to rot, and they're going to they're going to lose any contact with tradition, uh, family structures, uh, religion, anything that gave their lives meaning and protected them from a very cruel world. Again, perhaps that is what you're seeking. Uh, you're saying, well, all of that sounds very leftist, and that that's not anything that we should be doing. However. Uh, if you have any interest in actually protecting any kind of community, those are kind of things that you have to do. Uh, so there, there's a very real tension there. I don't think this is a problem that has been solved in any way, shape, or form, but it is a mechanical thing that we really need to understand about what's going on in the world around us if we want to have a chance at addressing the issues that we're facing. All right, guys, uh, going to go ahead and pivot over to the questions of the people here. Let me take a look at what we've got. Uh, Thursday here for five dollars. Uh, Pen Benedict, uh, the sixteenth. Uh, Cardis in. Uh, sorry, I don't know all of that pronunciation. Uh, talks about. Oh, sorry, I should put up on the screen here. Uh, talks about this kind of specifically stakeholding versus shareholding. Uh, yeah. So that sounds like a lot of co uh, Catholic uh, doctrine that I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, but uh, definitely something that probably is worth worth looking into here i'll have to contact somebody like the distributist who is more familiar with some of those uh uh encyclicals uh looks like a slosher here for 10 canadian thank you very much just a donation really appreciate it uh jacob zindel for ten dollars here the global elite uh elite new appear fully i think that might be now globally elite uh now appear fully neo-feudal an inter, uh, international and insular group of people who marry one another and appoint one another to positions of power over the locusts and debt peons. Yeah, that is most certainly the attempt that is happening, of course, on the global level, though I think you're going to get, um, and this, this is probably not uh, anyone's favorite prediction from me, but I think you are going to get feudalism either way. Uh, I think that uh, society, I think Gatana Mosque is right and the society tends to work from uh, bureaucratic complexity back to feudal complexity, back to bureaucratic complexity, down to feudal complexity. Right now we have bureaucratic complexity and they're attempting to globalize it. However, that kind of creates a, a feudalism at a global level. However, uh, I don't think that's going to be sustainable. Uh, I'm not long on the ability of the global elites to maintain a empire. And so I think that we are going to see a devolution of things, but I don't think it'll be even down to the size of nations that we see now, but to something small, far smaller, uh, perhaps even something that people would describe as feudal in nature. Raul McNuggets here for $20. Big downfall of the U.S. is state control of private property. Limits on excluding people from property based on beliefs behavior is civil rights state, uh, is civil rights state control or uh, agent of deterritorialization and homogenization. Well, so you're, you've got a mix here. So obviously you're talking about the right of, of association and the right of association is, is been dead in the United States for a long time. It's very weird because it used to be a, a critical part. It would have been listed as a, as a critical part of any kind of liberalism, the right of free association uh, of citizens. However, that has been destroyed. You've correctly pointed out that uh, civil rights law has more or less uh, destroyed that decision making. Now, to be clear, guys, just because you can make that decision doesn't necessarily make you mean you would or should. Uh, but whether or not the right exists uh, is really the thing that is up for debate. And the answer is it does not. Uh, and so the question is, is that an agent of deterritorialization and homogenization? So obviously it requires uh, you to have a, a more globalizing look. And I think we can see this in a macro way when we look at immigration policy, uh, which is really just an extension of this, you, you know, citizens do not have the right uh, under kind of the liberal paradigm or the progressive paradigm to limit who enters their country, uh, just as you do not have the right to limit who, you know, lives in a neighborhood or, or, or works at a business or, or, you know, shops or wherever. And so the idea there is that this is uh, a removal of any kind of, separation any kind of exit any kind of uh you know uh decision on made on the behalf of the property holder as to whether or not they can limit access 
And we've taken that, again, that kind of micro uh, uh, determination that was made inside the civil rights framework. And that has been blown up to a nationwide understanding of uh, entry into the country and to citizenship. And so, uh, you know, uh, is this an agent of deterritorialization? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that obviously has to be the case. Ultimately, if you have this kind of free flow, and this is one of the things that you'll hear uh, from free traders, you need the free flow of capital and capital includes people. You need labor, free flow, flow of labor. And so you have to get rid of national borders in order, in order to do this. In case you're wondering, uh, you know, who, who thought this was a good idea? I mean, uh, Marx said that he was a free trader in, in, in the sense that it was more likely to accelerate the breakdown of nations. And that's ultimately something that he was looking for because he wanted a global control of capital. And so, uh, and so uh, yes, I think that ultimately that does, uh, that does uh, make it an a agent of deterritorialization if you don't have the ability to control who's moving in and out of your borders because uh, they need to, or, you know, whether they be your own personal private property or the nation as a whole, uh, because, because there's the needs of capital uh, must be served, then obviously that's going to have that effect. All right, guys. So I think that is all of our questions for today. I want to thank everybody for coming by. I know this one's a little more complicated. Uh, there's, a, there's a little more uh, technical nuance on this one, but I like to dive into the theory with you guys. We do, the, of course, you know, the, the news of the day. Every once in a while, we get to dive into even some drama, I guess, here or there. But I do try to bring uh, the theory. Uh, so we're, we're, doing, we're offering something a little different, and we're not just riffing on constantly on the current thing. Uh, and so uh, sometimes we do these deep dives. Uh, they can be a little more intense, a little more confusing. Uh, but I think they're well worth our time to break down this kind of stuff and understand it. So thank you guys again for coming by. I really appreciate everybody. Of course, if this is your first time on the channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you just subscribe to the Oren McIntyre, Oren McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do, please leave a rating or review. It really helps with all the algorithm magic. Once again, guys, appreciate your comments. And I'll talk to you next time.